Well, I see by your bulletin you can take a pick on who I am today. I could either be Ron Show, Ron Snow, or Ron Smith. <laughs> anyway, I choose um, to be Ron Snow just because it's a, kind of a cool name. Anyway, you guys know that I like to wander around when I talk. But I've chosen a topic today that uh, I might be tied to my notes a little bit more. And before we proceed any further, let's just ask God to be with us as we open his word. Father, we thank you so much. We have an opportunity to come and to study together. And my prayer this morning is that the uh, words of my mouth will be acceptable in your sight. That they will be an encouragement, and they will help people appreciate your character even more, and long from the bottom of their hearts for when you come back to restore us back to that perfect place in a new heaven and a new earth is our prayer this morning. Amen. Proto-Evangelium, do you know what it means? Anybody? Proto-evangelium. Okay, it, it has something to do with Genesis 3.15, and I'd like to expand it to include 14 through 19. It means the first gospel. The first time the gospel is introduced in Scripture. And who did it come from? God himself. Correct? After a, a, a tra- tragic event in the fall of man. And a lot of times we take and we look at this particular passage and we think curses, curses, and curses. But my understanding of God and his character. Yes, there are times he has to deal, and he has to deal with wayward people. But his way of dealing is always redemptive. And if we cannot look at these few verses in a redemptive mode, then we've lost the whole point. And rather than being pro-evangelium just being verse 15, I think it includes 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Because the whole thought pertains to salvation and it should be a blessing. And if we cannot equate it with a blessing, we've missed the point. We're all familiar with it, aren't we? So let's take and read it just a little bit slowly. And I want you to notice that there are only two times in between verses 14 and verses 19 that the words cursed is used. And when I look it up in the the Hebrew dictionary, I find the word cursed means an annoyance. Something has really gotten under my skin and I am not only angry, I'm annoyed, but not to the angry appointing of wanting to destroy, but annoyed because something's irritating me. And then that I can find a redemptive, a little seed of redemption. 
If something irritates you, you're going to take your shoe off. I remember one time I had uh, coaching basketball. I had a little confrontation with one of the players, and it kind of just went wild through the whole team. So I decided I needed to get on top of it, and I took and asked for their shoe at the beginning of one of the practice. I wanted one of their shoes. And I proceeded to put a rock. Oh, maybe the size of, double the size of a BB. And I made him practice the whole two hours with a rock in their shoe. What do you think they thought about? The rock. How come? It's an irritant. So what do you do with an irritant? You get rid of it. Take your shoe off. Take the rock out. Let's get back to normal. Okay, let's look at this here. Obviously, we have Satan, we have Adam, we have Eve, and we have God. And the Lord God said unto his servant, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Is he talking about snakes? Yeah, there's a little bit there. Is there about snake? But you know, if I notice that there's a a fear of an animal... I think a mouse probably incites more fear in people because you watch any little uh, episode where somebody runs across a mouse in their kitchen. Where do they end up? On top of the counter. Or that thing, they at that broom they're chasing around, it turns around, starts running at them, and they scream and they holler, they drop the broom and they flee. Okay? I think a mouse is a whole lot scarier than a snake. Who's it talking about? We have to figure it out, right? And we have to take and go back to the verse of uh, chapter 3 and start seeing some of the story to fill in some of those gaps. Who was behind this serpent? Satan. And then we have to understand what was going on in this whole scenario. You see, we just had creation. And at the end of creation, God says it, everything was very, very, very good. And then he hands, he hands Adam and Eve the title to the planet. You are to have dominion. You are to rule. You are to manage this planet. It's yours. So who did it belong to? Adam and Eve. But we have Satan out there knowing from the great controversy that went on in heaven that he's been thrown out of a kingdom. So now we have Satan and a third of the angels wandering around without a kingdom. And he knew that if he could get in there to Adam and Eve and somehow trick him, deceive him, that he would then be able to take and pass and, and have them pass that title to planet Earth to him. Is that scriptural? Does it not say in several places the God of this world? And who's it referring to in Daniel? Satan. Who represented the the planet Earth in Job's recollection when they met in the councils of heaven? Who represented Earth? Satan did. And later on in the New Testament, we have the God of force. 
So here he is, he's claiming to be God, but he knew that he had to somehow trick and deceive. So he took on Eve and he presented to her with a line of thought that questioned God's word. And because of it, yes, a snake is cursed. There is something about a fear of a snake. Uh, I used to have a uh, rattlesnake in my my freezer right next to the ice cream. I never had any problem with anybody of my kids stealing ice cream without permission because I had to go get it. They wouldn't touch it. I mean, the snake didn't even have a head. It was a rattlesnake. Didn't have a head, but nobody would go get the ice cream because of the snake. I thought that was rather ridiculous, but anyway, it saved my ice cream and I was happy. Verse 15, though, says that there's something I will put enmity, and that is obviously hatred, between thee, referring to the serpent or Satan, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Now, do you notice that the word seed is singular? Biologically, is it possible for a woman to bear a child? So how can it be here that the seed of a woman, biologically, it is impossible. They need the seed of a man to create life. So right here, we have something about a virgin birth. In fact, and later on, Isaiah says that they, the virgin in that definite article preceding virgin says something that was planned ahead of time, something that was prophesied to. So Isaiah is referring back here to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, there will come a seed of a virgin. And obviously the devil, his seed, and obviously there's going to be conflict. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's going to be something there between. There's going to be contention. And where there is hatred, there has always been contention. There has always been a fight. When two things hate each other, no amount of reason sometimes can stop those two people. I remember the interesting, one of the most interesting fights I ever saw was in um, uh, Aurora, Oregon. There at City Hall, which also housed the post office. As I pulled up to to, uh, go in and and mail my letters, I noticed two ladies, obviously older, yelling and screaming at each other. And I finally saw them resort to blows. So I pulled over and watched. (laughs) Not too much damage was done, but you could tell that they hated each other. The words that were being flung about, the slaps, the biting, there was a hatred there. They could not stand each other. So this is saying there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict. But there's going to be a result of that conflict, and one is going to bruise the head and the other one the heel. So there will be a victor, and there will be a loser. And we all understand that as the great controversy. But then the next question is, where do Adam and Eve fit in 
in the next verses. Because I have the promise of this here saying with this hatred there will be a victor and there will be a loser. And whose determination is it? I get to choose. I get to watch. I get to vote for one side or the other. I am going to be active in this because obviously if I'm part of the seat of that woman, I will be involved. I'll be a participant, not a spectator. But then when he turns to the woman in verse 16, he says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Ladies, childbirth fun? You know, I see a lot of... Okay, but is there a fun part? Yes. I heard that emphatically all the way up from here, all the way, way back there. What's the fun part? The delivery. All right. Now, I think, I think, and this is my own opinion. Have you ever noticed how they, they say childbirth, there's labor and delivery? What's the painful part? The labor, you have the delivery and hold that baby. Is that the fun part? Have you ever noticed that in Scripture there's lots of times that it says uh, they were delivered out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? Have you ever noticed that the two demoniacs were delivered? Story after story after story all the way through scripture or you have delivery from bondage, pain, and it becomes joy. So can we take this? Greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Yeah, it does. He didn't include that in this discipline. I'm not going to he doesn't use the word curse. And I'm not going to use the word that Jesus was condemning what Eve did because it has to be somehow redemptive. It needs to be a reminder of what God wants to do in this battle between the devil and God. Are there times that we're going to be hurt? Are there times that we are going to experience pain can we broaden this whole thing to not just include women but even all mankind our lessons this quarterly on the crucible how many stories do we have all through scripture how about joseph being sold was that a painful experience what was the deliverance what was the joy that he enjoyed Getting to see his brothers. Getting to call his father back. Getting to rescue them from famine. The agony and the ecstasy. The labor and the delivery. Reminders of who Eve, what Eve had done and how even though it was a terrible thing, 
there was a redemptive part in it because when she held that baby for the first time and she understood that that baby could have been the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. But even then, she bore the pain of seeing her eldest killing his sibling. But she clung on to this promise that eventually the ecstasy, the fun part of childbearing would come when we are delivered from the hand of bondage and Jesus comes to take us home. So is this not all a lesson of redemption? First Timothy 2.15 even says, the bringing forth of a child is joy. And in it, you will find salvation for mothers. Hope? Absolutely. Praise the Lord. He's redemptive. He is not vindictive. Praise the Lord. He has given us promises. And we need to start looking deep for these promises when it looks like it might be bleak. Let's go to the next one. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. What does it mean? How can we take and say, okay, there's been many instances all down through history. We can go to any place in the world and we find cultures that say, okay, you know what? A husband's to rule over the wife. And in some cultures that includes the possibility of life or death. That if the husband so desires that he does not love his wife anymore, that he no longer, she's disobedient, he has every right to kill her. You know, we automatically think of the Muslim world. Honor killings. Where somebody has brought disrespect to the family, and usually the wife. So the husband has the right to kill her. And even the laws of those lands have protected the husband. But is this what he's talking about? By the way, they did a study in, in, in England. They noticed that uh, there were several murders. In fact, it was becoming quite a plague. So they decided to do a study on a thing called honor killings. To where if somebody brings disrespect to the family, the father has the right to exterminate him. And they found by far it was the wife who was exterminated. So they commissioned a study to say, who was doing this? This is something, we're a Western civilization, we're, we're advanced, why are we having these honor killings? So they went into it expecting that it would be the Muslim world. But to their shock, it was not. The largest group who participated in honor killings were conservative Christians, fundamentalists, who said, if you didn't toe the line, I have the right to kill you. Jimmy Carter wrote a book on fundamentalism. I don't like, I did not like Jimmy Carter. I think his, his policies and stuff, I have a lot I don't like about him. 
As an individual, I think he is one of the greatest men that had ever lived. Habitat for Humanity and everything. But he wrote a book on fundamentalism and how it is pervading Christianity today. And he goes through the steps of fundamentalism. And the last one is, is if you don't agree with me, you are my enemy. And I have the right to kill you. Does that not lead to the last day events? Civilized people, Christians in name only, I have the right to kill you because you do not agree with me. Is this what Jesus is talking about or God is talking about here and to Adam and Eve? There's lots of places in scripture where it talks about husbands loving your wives. Yes, there is something about being submissive, but I would like to take and look at the word desire. And then let's blow up our vision of what he's talking about here. Desire can be equated with what else? Love, could it not? Song of Solomon talks about the desire of the, uh, the woman for her husband who wants to love her, who wants to, him to love her, and she wants to love him. Let's expand that view a little bit. A symbol of God's church on this planet is a woman. The symbol of the husband or the groom is Christ. Now, is Christ looking to kill his bride? No. He sees potential. He wants to enter into a relationship with her such that they will love each other. They will treat each other as equals. And that love concept will grow and grow till they become as one. What do you think the word atonement means? At one meant. Could it be that this thing that we look at as a curse A desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. Could it be, could it be that God placed within Eve, who wandered off by herself, without her husband, saying, you can't do anything without God. You need God in your life, who is the symbol of the husband. Can we do anything without God? No. You know, it's interesting. Arlene Taylor is a Seventh-day Adventist research on brain function. Anybody ever heard of her? She has several YouTube presentations. Um, I happened to go to a church where she had friends. And the first Sabbath of every new year, she comes and she does a present weekend presentation. She did one on there is something that is called a memory pro- protein in molecules in our brain, which is just loaded with them, in our heart, and in our gut. And those memory proteins can take and record all kinds of events. They're the things that in our lives bring back to remembrance. We all know how our brain functions. And there's times that our heart tells us, hey, wait a minute. Or tells us, hey, You've done it once before. Let's do it again. And then there's those times that our guts tell us, stay away. But let me share with you two stories. 
there was a young pastor who was born with a heart defect. And he uh, needed a heart transplant, so he went through the process. This is Arlene Teller, T- uh, Taylor telling the story. And it was successful. He's doing just fine. A few years afterwards, he's in a follow-up with his doctor. And his doctor takes and asks him and says, you know, are there anything unusual that you're noticing about your transplant? And the guy kind of, he looks at the floor and he looks at the ceiling and he goes, "Uh, yeah, one thing that's really bothering me. He says, I don't know if it's related to my heart or whatever, but it's just so different. I've got to share it with you. I've got to ask you, what's going on? So the doctor says, okay, tell me the story. He says, you know, on the way to my church, there's this four-way stop. As I come to that intersection, off to the right is a tavern. And he says, I have this irresistible urge to pull in and go get a drink. And he says, Doc, I have never touched alcohol in my life. I do not know what it tastes like. I have no desire until recently to even try. And the doctor laughed, looked at him and kind of chuckled. And he says, let me tell you a story. Your donor was an alcoholic. And that bar that you just referenced was his favorite watering hole. He says, we don't understand what it is about the memory capability of those proteins around your heart and how it affects. So the pastor says, do I have to live with this the rest of my life? And the doctor says, no, you have a choice. Does it affect? Absolutely. I'm going to get to a point. I have one more story. Bobby McFerrin, a recording artist, one who uh, kind of outside the box, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It's one of his most famous songs. He likes to improvise with mouth sounds. And he'll do a concert, and uh, there will be a squeaky chair, and all of a sudden he's doing a duet with the squeaky chair. And people are just astounded how he can do this. He just improvises. He just has that ability. Well, he was in Berlin, and I heard Bobby tell this story on YouTube. He was in Berlin, and he was giving this concert to about 17,000 people. And in the audience, there was a linguist who was studying the dying, art, the dying languages of Africa. And after the concert, she sought him out and says, Bobby, I have a question for you. Where did you learn to speak that language? Because there's only about three or four people that speak that language. And he goes, what do you mean? And she says, you weren't putting sentences together, but your vocabulary, you were speaking words of this dialect. Not just one or two, but dozens of them. And he goes, you've got to be kidding goes, no. And she repeated, and he remembered the, word, the, the sounds he had been making out of his mouth were actual words of a dying dialect in Africa, of which only three or four people still spoke. So I asked Arlene Taylor, what is it? Oh, 
I can't finish Bobby's story first. So Bobby says, uh, where in Africa? So she told him, what tribe? So she told him. So Bobby went home, got out some research, started looking. You know what his heritage is? The tribe from Africa that she had been studying. And he was repeating those words unknown to him. I shared that with Arlene Taylor. She's the perfect example of those M signs holding memory from generations back. Is that scriptural? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the third and fourth generation. People. When he said he's going to put this desire in her heart to her husband, the only conclusion that I can come to, and I, I asked Arlene Taylor, am I correct in my conclusion? She says, I think so. Could it be in my DNA, in your DNA, in those memory proteins, we have connection with the Garden of Eden? Could we have a connection with Jesus Christ that just pulls out of us? That we want to get back. And how many people have you known that someplace in their life, when they give their testimony, they said, I want to know Jesus. What put it there? What put it there? It's right here in Genesis 3.16. When we expand just more than Adam and Eve. But when we look at the church, you and me, in relationship to our God. A promise. A promise. Praise the Lord that every single one of us has that memory protein that wants to unite back with God. Is that good news or what? Is that pro-evangelium? Is that the good news? Is that the first gospel? We need to expand our knowledge in this. Okay, now let's go on. Adam has to bear some of this responsibility too. And we're going to come up on the second cursed. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Now, I want to introduce another aspect of cursed. Cursed means I no longer want to have anything to do with it. I'm pulling back. This is what happened. This is the consequence. I'm pulling back. What did he say when he cursed the serpent? Did he want to have anything to do with the devil? No, he acknowledged him as the enemy. They were in conflict with each other. They were trying to kill each other. God had completely withdrawn from Satan. He no longer had any contact with him other than through adversity and conflict. And now we have he's cursed the earth. Because out of it came everything, correct? In creation, 
Cursed is it. So he started a generation of a, a, a process of degeneration. And do you know that within the scientific world they acknowledge this? It's called the second law of thermodynamics. That any large system, if left unattended, will decay, degenerate, and become something of a disorder. And eventually go extinct. As God's presence was withdrawn from that Garden of Eden and from the earth, and was it not? Did man have face-to-face communion with him anymore? No. God's presence was being withdrawn. And what immediately happened to nature? They saw that first season. They saw the leaves die. They saw thorns. They saw thistles. And they saw that they had to now work where the earth would cooperate with them, where they just took and they managed it. And there was cooperation. How many of you guys would like to be able to plant a garden and never have to weed it, never have to water it, never have to take care of it? That was the Garden of Eden. But now we have thorns, we have thistles, and we're going to, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work. A reminder of what sin did when God withdrew his presence. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of your life. Constant reminder, thorns, hostile. Thistles shall that bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it, for, okay, for dust thou art, and unto, okay, excuse me, I looked away and I lost my place. In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shall thou return. This second law of thermodynamics, they first observed it with fire. It was obvious that uh, if you started a large fire, and if you just let it go, what happens to it? It eventually goes out. It's consumed everything, right? Okay, as a result of God's presence being withdrawn, all of a sudden you see these things no longer being under control. You see gene mutation. You see, I'm not going to use the word adaptation because it has too much uh, evolutionary connotation. But when God's order was withdrawn, things just kind of went crazy. And we have thorns and thistles. We have the breakdown of ground that was once good that nourished those plants. Breaking down and becoming sterile. You guys know what the smallest desert in the world is? Where it's located? It's only about two acres. It's in the state of Maine. And it was overgrazed. It was over-cultivated. Um, To the extent of there is nothing will grow there at all. And as it expands, it takes and kills everything in its path. 
So it is slowly expanding as these nutrients are being used. The plants that are using it around the nutrients around the edges, as they use up those few nutrients, that land becomes sterile. Illustrating again the second law of thermodynamics. Any system left to itself will degenerate, fall into disorder, disintegrate, and go extinct. Let me ask you a question. We have a hot topic going on right now. Something about climate change. How long has the climate been changing? Since the fall of man. That's a large system, isn't it? Left to itself, it's going to go and disintegrate, decay, disorder. How close are we to extinction? You know, if they want to talk about climate change, and then let's talk about the redemptive power of God, because that's the next thing we need to look at. You see, this sorrow that Adam was condemned to has four parts. Disappointment. He works, and he works, and he works. And a lot of times it seems futile. And when he works tilling the ground, there's going to be pain and suffering. He's going to sweat. All the days of his life, he has to work just to sustain him and his family. Till eventually he dies, and what does he return to? Dust. Dust. Where's the redemptive part? We have sorrow. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Is there not some place in Isaiah 53, 3 and 5 that Jesus was a man of sorrows? Who took Adam's place? Who is the ultimate man of sorrows? Adam or Jesus? So when Adam's out there and he is in sorrow watching these plants change, and by when it says uh, uh, there's, there's, there's a word here and it's eluding me at the moment, it means to morph. As he watched these thorns and thistles coming out of what were good plants before, it ripped his heart out. But he also saw that if he took and he worked at it, there was still a plan that he could pull something out that would sustain a life. Pain and suffering. I was riding in Africa on the top of a uh, land cruiser while watching and looking at animals about sundown. Everything over there in Africa has a thorn on it. There's a tree that's called wait a bit. You ever heard of it? It has thorns on it. It has like fish hooks. They're curved. And you get caught in it, you're going to wait a bit before you get out. So we're driving along, and we're, uh, uh, as long as you're connected to this vehicle, the animals really don't pay you much attention. 
and we brushed by a wait a bit tree, and I had a brand new sweatshirt on. And this branches brushed across my chest and the shoulder here. Do you know that it ripped that shirt off? Because I grabbed onto that luggage rack as hard as I could, and it ripped that sweatshirt to shreds. I have a picture of an acacia thorn, one thorn. It started about right here where I broke it off the limb, clear up to here. The natives over there use it as toothbrushes. They also sew with it because it's so stiff. Sharp? Oh, my goodness. You don't want to back into one. Everything over there has a thorn. And for some reason, when you get cut by one of these things, there must be something, some ingredient within the sap of that plant that it stings like crazy. And does not a rose do that? Why does a little rose pinprick on your finger hurt so bad? There's something there. So in pain and suffering, Adam had to work the ground. But let me ask you a question. When it comes to thorns, is there not someplace else in Scripture? Who wore thorns? Who suffered the pain of thorns and released man from the bondage of slavery, the bondage of sin. Who bore that pain? Jesus did. When it comes to tears and sweat, Debbie and I have started a garden it's an old creek bed. We have about two inches of topsoil. The rest is sand, and the last post hole I dug, about 80% of it was uh, round rock. And I've heard it said that Montana does not have any good soil, and I believe them. I haven't been to too many places, but I believe them. And I did just a regular post hole dug my post hole with a post hole digger, so it's only about this big around. I had rocks that were about that size that I took out, laying down with a flat screwdriver, digging them out. Sweat? Oh, my goodness. You ever have sweat in your eyes? Oh, yeah. But I have a story. Who ultimately sweated so great that, as it were, great drops of blood? Who paid the price? Jesus did. The fourth part of this sorrow that Adam was to to, uh, reap was death. Need I ask the question? Who died for us? Jesus did. That I might have life.
when it comes to eating of the bread. You're going to have to sustain your life by the labor of cultivating the ground. But yet I find another place to sustain life everlasting is the bread of life of which you'll never get hungry. I find several places in Scripture, the Beatitudes being one, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I see the woman at the well, thirsty. But he says, if you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of me, will you thirst? I like to think yes, because I want more. But it brings everlasting life. When Jesus met the devil in the desert, man shall not live by bread alone. What does it do to Genesis 3.17? It gives us the hope, the promise of something better to come. Beatitudes, hungering and thirsting, you will be filled. The sanctuary, the bread, the table of showbread. Communion, this is my body that is broken for you. Do you see why when I look at Genesis 3.15, which has the connotation of pro-evangelium, meaning the first gospel, I cannot exclude 14, 16, 17, 18, and 19, because they all speak of Christ paying it all. And that's why he could say, on the cross, just before he died, it is finished. He bruised the head of the serpent. He won. Where do you and I fit in? We need to take these promises and apply them to our lives. We need to know who God is and how much he loves us. We need to take and realize that he died for all. There is no condemnation, John 3.17. He didn't come to curse and condemn Adam and Eve. He didn't come to, con- to curse you and I. He came to redeem us. He came to bring reconciliation. He came to put away sin. He came to bring perfection. He, became, he came to bring us atonement. That the death that I deserve... He suffered that the life that he deserves is mine. I don't know what the number of our song is, but Jesus paid it all. How much? What is it? 184. 184. Would you stand with me and with gusto? Realize that.